Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast, episode 175. I'm Steve Smith. Tonight, we're going to be talking to Dave Anderson. To our listeners, he needs no introduction. To those people listening to the podcast for the first time, I would say easily he is one of the most accomplished tennis teachers in the U.S. of A. Uh, in the world, for that matter. And he has the record to prove it. Let me give him a call. He put together a list for do's and don'ts for parents. And I said, well... We're going to do that. We need to have a do's and don'ts for teaching pros. How's it go? Parents talk about pros. Pros talk about parents. So for your tennis treasure chest, more golden nuggets. Hello. Dave Anderson. Yeah. The, the, regular, the regular on our podcast. Appreciate you taking all the time. And I appreciate yeah. also Pleasure. the, the do's and don'ts. I've got a lot of positive feedback, the do's and don'ts for parents. And what I said uh, just before I came on air and mentioned that, uh, how's it go? Pros talk about parents. Parents talk about pros. Uh, the do's and don'ts. Yeah. Um, uh, that actually goes a long ways. I don't speak German, but I spent a lot of time in Germany. Nicht so, sondern so. Not this, rather this. Uh, make these lengthy videotapes. In a lot of ways, they shouldn't be so verbose, but... You know, people are so confused. You have to be very persuasive. But then in the end, say, don't do this, do this. Remember uh, disco dancing? Mm-hmm. That was uh, a line I used to do. Uh, di disco here and disco there, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, you want to start with the do's or the don'ts for tennis teaching professionals? Um, we, can, uh, we can rattle off some of the do's and... and uh, they kind of tie in together, like you said. It uh, okay, but uh, we can we can start with the do's. Well, you know, and, no no, you know, no inside jokes. But did uh, Freddie Foreman write this for you? I I didn't consult with Freddie, but uh, I, I mainly you know collaborate with him on more worldly things like music and art and hair. With, uh, with, he, with, uh, with Freddie, for our listeners, no inside jokes, but Freddie, they're both from Minot, North Dakota. And um, I think, you know, Freddie's taller, better looking, more hair, good on the drums, good on the guitar, sing. He's better at like 12 out of 13 sports, but I think the 13th one was tennis, but I think Freddie's caught up. We need to have that exhibition I've been talking about for a long time. Yeah, we need to fly him in. I, <laughs> I, will, make, I will make time to to play that exhibition only if it's streamed live though it's uh he doesn't he wouldn't have a chance i know you said I, i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure my wife could beat him now <laughs> you said but, so many uh, nice, nice things about uh mike carter which uh same thing ditto it's good to have a freddie around it, paul mcdonald yeah, put freddie put freddie or mike at any club in america or every club in america and tennis is growing out of the out of its seams yeah, put Paul McDonald used to call him instant party. So Janice, she's mm -hmm. a better player than you now. She's she's into it. You know, she's been around tennis her whole life. As you know, you knew us when we weren't even married, and uh, you know, here she is at this point picking it up. And um, you know, when the way she just navigates through tennis, even though she's you know com competing three five ish level, but you know, has wins even at some four zero players and. Um, after about three years, I mean, she, the way she navigates on a tennis court, it makes her look like she's been playing her whole life. 
got a one-handed backhand. And, All right. One-handed. You know, just, just, just in her ready position and, and her rituals. And you can just tell she's just watched a lot of tennis in her life. Well, also too, the, she, the flexibility, whether yoga or fitness, that helps too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's still fit as a fiddle. It's unbelievable, really. And uh, are you the coach? Pretty disciplined. No, um, I'm, I'm lower on that list than, than, than Freddie is behind me in all the sports. Um, she works with, you know, she, she's on so many different teams and all that, and they do drills and everything. But, yeah, actually, that's what I'm doing. I hope she doesn't listen to this, but uh, for Christmas, I'm going to – she always tells people I'm too busy for her, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear one slot a week, and uh, I'm going to – work with their technique. All right. One hour a week. Jim Martz, a uh, longtime owner, uh, operator of the magazine, uh, Florida tennis. And I don't believe it's completed. I haven't talked to him, uh, in some time now. Um, I was, you know, maybe within the six months ago, I, I had asked him about his book. He was going to write a book on, uh, quotes, Arthur Ashe quotes. And one was, uh, I, you know, he, he had, called me several times for Arthur Ashe quotes, but one was never teach your spouse. Yeah. Arthur Ashe. Yeah. I think at this stage of the game with us, it, it, it can work, but uh, maybe at other points in our 36 years of marriage, it, it may not have uh, went over quite so well. Yeah. Go ahead. Give us a do. Tennis teaching yeah. professionals. So, well, and, you know, I'll preface everything by saying I, I have a lot of respect and admiration for people who want to go into the, the tennis coaching business or coaching in general. It's a noble profession. And, and uh, but for, for tennis coaches tonight, doing some of the do's, some things that I think can help really make the career more productive, more meaningful. Number one, to begin your career path with an apprenticeship mentality. And beside that, I put a 10-year process. Um, I think in, in the history of, of everything, having that apprenticeship mentality and just putting yourself around people and situations where you can acquire the skills to be really effective. Uh, and uh, I think some people do that for, for a short time and they become much more competent than those who don't, but to truly do it. And, and, and obviously the earlier you start it, the better. Um, and if you're already in the profession and it's never too late to do it. And, and again, that's kind of what the great base can, can do, even if it's uh, an indirect apprenticeship, um, it can, it can give you some ideas and wisdom that, that you may not be able to acquire really uh, on your own. So I think that's very important mentality to develop. No, I like the word pay your, you know, the phrase pay your dues, apprenticeship. Ten years, uh, Malcolm Gladwell in the book Outliers, the story of success, the story of circumstance, uh, you know, a thousand hours a year for ten years, you know, the 10,000 hour rule. Um, I really believe to be a tennis teacher, just like a tennis player or a tennis parent, uh, ten years Again, back to Arthur Ashe, three years to be a fair player, five years to be a good player, 10 years to be a great player. And, uh, you know, if you think in decades, um, you know, they, you know, I, if I can make it through this year, I'll be 70. 
that's only seven decades. They go by so fast mm-hmm. with, um, I think also, you know, thought for me for 10 years is that, well, if you haven't taught 10 years, you should have a lesson plan. If you've taught more than 10 years, you know, then you can have a guideline with, um, but yeah, I just think there's, there's way too much winging that there's not enough prep, not enough prep. Go ahead. Number two. Yeah, and it's hard. It's, Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for people too to, I think, develop that apprenticeship mentality because uh, the way the sport, uh, as people come into the profession, the way that they're paid and and uh, you know they're paid primarily through being on court, uh, trying to make a living that way, and you know carving out the, the 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 profession could maybe help that out. But that's that's another topic that. Uh, um, you know, I think people could do do other things to to remedy that inside of our profession. The salaries usually get paid to people that are off the court, and um, I think that it could be blended right from the point of entry, which would allow people a little bit more wiggle room to to, to do an effective apprenticeship. Say say that again about on court, off court. Well, I I think salaries get allocated. Um, you see a lot of pros working to in a sense, get off the court. Um, and, uh, you know, at some point in their career path, uh, and, and for many, the sooner, the better it seems. And, and I think that those salaries, um, that often sit at the top and typically you see a director, uh, you know, who teaches maybe none or uh, not at all, or maybe, you know, under five, 10 hours a week, but sits on a big salary. I think those salaries could be, um, divided differently and uh everybody could contribute to the teaching and it it would also uh teach some administrative skills maybe early on to people but also give them a a supplemental income in a sense that may offer the time for them to do more effective apprenticeships from teachers as well Um, but it's just not the way our industry works with um obviously every situation is different case by case yeah. study, but I think, think that uh, um, many of the people that work off the court, if they are just, you know, they're really motivated to get away from the ball hopper and just be a briefcase off the court pro um, their business overall, all aspects of their business will probably be more service based than education based. Mm-hmm. Because if you grow, you, if you get too far away from the court, I mean, how can you really, um, ensure there's a, you know, a quality product, quality education. You know, I think one thing with pandemic and now people working remotely, you know, you and I go way back and we first were together studying tennis. Uh, there was a, a number of fellow students who were making a career change or have retired, had retired from the military. Um, I think, mm-hmm. I think people in tennis teaching, they, they should realize that, you know, it's a bonus if you have a playing background, but you don't need to have a playing background. Um, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. No, I was one time doing. I was working for Tennis Corporation of America, and um, two people I hired: a, a gal for uh, early childhood development, and a guy help with men's programming. And they weren't players. And you know, everyone was laughing at me. But a year later, they both had generated more revenue than anybody else on staff. Hmm. Um, they had, they had skills to bring from, um, other professions. Yeah, definitely. 
How about number two? David Letterman, number working, two. Down the, working down the list. Number two, develop an obsession with learning the science and the art of teaching tennis. Um, yeah, I'll let you go. Well, it is both. It is both. Um, I always tell people, for example, on the, on the, on the serve, if you can't sleep at night, you, you toss and turn, but on the serve, you turn and toss. And, you know, you and I spent time training tennis coaches together. It's like, okay, one word lesson, just a one word lesson. And, you know, with, so there, there is an art, how, you know, how can you say it and say it a better way? Or how many, how many ways can you say it the same way? Um, but you, you do, I definitely have to combine both, um, with the science. I think that's where follow science. I do think that even all these years later, um, you know, you know, physics dictates what happens to a tennis ball. You don't have to be a physicist, but you know, the ball is going to go the way the strings face. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I think, you know, that as you get into anything, whatever profession it is, but I think in tennis teaching, I think it's got to go beyond the lesson court. And, um, you know, I think that there's so much out there and available there. There's, there's good information out there. Um, if one were to just take tennis intelligence applied and, and, slowly go through it and then just every six months review it. And then, you know, through some of the resources, some of the pillars that are, 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 are a part of the great base, whether Vandermeer, Braden, uh, you know, Lair, guys like Grapple, um, who, you know, wasn't mentioned, but it, it, I think that you just, you have to become obsessed with it. I think you have to have that Kobe Bryant mentality of, of, you know, studying everything you're doing and it can it can really accelerate your level of efficiency as far as what you're doing as a tennis coach um i think that there are not enough there's not enough awareness i think of maybe the levels you know the the levels within the game and then the levels within the teaching profession and and, uh you know we're we're all in it together but um just like we're we're very aware that bad Djokovic and Rafa are different than the rest of the crops out there. Um, there's differences in tennis teaching too. And, uh, I think to try to, to try to become, uh, the best you can be, you have to be a little obsessive with it. Yeah. I think make tennis your universe. Um, I, you know, how's it go? Um, all work and no play made Jack a dull boy but you are in the people business, you know, it should be people first and profit second. And you really want to ha- um, help people out, um, continuing education. You know, you just can't, yeah. it's the same thing as a player. I always say program plus, uh, no program develops a player. It's what you do on your own. And same thing with a tennis coach. You know, are, are you going to go to go the distance? And uh, you know, it's, it's really mind boggling that you know, someone thinks that they can come and, do an apprenticeship here. Um, and think, well, yeah, I'll just I'll come in for a weekend and I'll get a good handle on things. And it, it takes, takes longer than that. You know, I like, the, yeah. I like the word shallow and the word, uh, deep, you know, to take a, take a deep dive to, you know, really go in depth and not just to have a, 
a shallow understanding with, you know, people that have studied the information that we've assembled. Um, you know, we have parents, I tell pros I train, I said, you have to understand there's going to like here where we are, there's going to be some parents that visit. Um, you know, that actually happened. I just was doing this traveling clinic and we had, you know, a few parents that I've known for 10 years and now their kids are older and they, they came to just be part of it. And I, was traveling with an with an intern and a student assistant. I said, "You have to realize." I said, "And that I think that's why you need to speak to an audience as well. There's always someone, you know, it could be a physicist, a biomechanist, biomechanist. There's always someone in the audience that's forgot more about the subject than you know. And if I think if you have that mentality, you'll be humble. But um, yeah, I just think there's no instant coffee. Not, not when it comes. Not, yeah. not when you're trying to become a competent, highly competent tennis teaching professional. Yeah, nobody begins your path as a master. Yeah, with uh, sure. How's it go? Uh, you're writing your own biography. Um, mm -hmm. uh, number three, study top coaches from other sports. Often, character development is culturally stronger. Knock on wood. That's so true. Go ahead. Well, I, you know. I think we often talk about it. I mean, I think that you can, I think you can learn from other sports. Um, I love watching high school football practice when we lived in Allen, one of the top high school programs in America and um, watching their system that they taught from uh, really pop, what used to be pop Warner, but it was just from young, young grades upward. Um, I loved watching the group dynamics. Um, I love the specificity, you know, watching the defense coach defensive coaches working with the, the different players on defense and quarterback coaches, all of that. And, um, I think you can learn a lot from, uh, the gymnastics, uh, when you go to a, a very intensive, you know, school for gymnastics. And as you know, here in where we lived in Allen, there were two, um, gold medalists, Nastia Lucan, and then Carly, uh, Patterson. That, that were from there and and uh, visiting that WOGA World Olympic Gymnastics Academy and seeing the the culture and the discipline that they established from from a very young age in all the different classes from the equivalent of early childhood all the way up to the the Olympic athletes that were trying to get on the team and um, I think that if you go you know through any city in America and you look at junior tennis programs. Um, there isn't the same culture. It, 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 I think we, we can learn a lot from other sports. And um, for some reason, and I think it's just because parents write a check, that we, we have become very inhibited in regard to uh, um, running a very structured and disciplined program to try to teach disciplines. Um, you have to have a disciplined program to try to acquire disciplines. Um, and skills and and but for I think that's become less and less a norm in our tennis culture. Talk a little bit about uh, Jordan Spieth. Yeah, Jordan Spieth grew up here at Brookhaven Country Club, and um, you know I run into the gentleman that was was very uh, responsible for a lot of his development through his youth, um, Joey, and uh, he's a great great coach that still just he literally coaches from sunrise to sunset and 
the guy just loves coaching golf. And um, Jordan Spieth, when I, you know, I remember watching him and I didn't know him at all, but I remember watching him. He would, he was always golfing with these, these two kids that I coached that they went to the same Jesuit uh, private school. And, uh, you know, I didn't think anything about it. And then suddenly he broke out, but I have asked Joey about it. And he, he said that, uh, you know, you'd never really notice anything about Jordan until, um, you know, until there was something on the line when they, when they would do a, a game or drill related to the, the skill in golf and, and put something on it, he, he became a different animal. And, you know, he was a multi-sporter. I know that, um, Family was very athletic, had a, had a sports background, um, but just a great competitor. Sister with special needs, I believe. Um, yeah. With, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, when you and I first, uh, met back in the eighties, uh, everybody played high school tennis and the high school Mm -hmm. tennis kids, you know, they were around all the athletes. And they, it was a big deal to get the the leather jacket. Uh, I don't know how you describe it. Where the, just the sleeves are were made of leather. Yeah, um, I think that's gone away. But I do do think that you know tennis kids uh, many times are just around tennis kids. You would uh, check your memory. I know you have a very good one. Uh, name of the coach. He's based in Texas. He had three boys who played. I think Austin Tennis Academy. I was watching Doug uh, Davis. Doug Davis. There you go. I was watching. Uh, um, Ashley Weinold played tennis and, you know, he asked me, you know, who I was watching and I said, Ashley Weinold. I said, you know, our, our parents were part of what I did, uh, what I was doing for five years. And then, you know, he knew who he was and we, so we chatted and I re- tell people all the time, we was at the Eddie Her, and he said, Steve, we're standing among the weakest people on the planet. And I hate, hate, mm-hmm. to, hate to beat up tennis kids, but, uh, why don't you comment off his comment? I really like Doug Davis um, as far as his attitude and approach. I mean, I've, I've seen him reprimand players and parents. <laughs> like, I mean, it was, it was, it was impressive and uh, traveled a bit with him when his son Blake was playing doubles with one of, one of the players I coached. And I mean, he developed three pretty good tennis players in, inside of his house. And, um, but uh, yeah, it, you know, I think that he was uh, very intensive on, um, you know, skill and character development. And and uh, we've talked about that. We've talked about this aspect. It was funny about, oh, it had to be 15 years ago. We were at a tournament and, and we started talking about, he, he kind of saw the changes coming, you know, back then, as did some of us. And, and uh you know, he said, you better brace yourself. He goes, cause different times are coming in our, in our coaching world. And, and, uh, he's still at it though. He's still at it going strong. I, I don't think he coaches as much, um, down at the Austin tennis Academy, but I think he, uh, you know, he, he certainly loved the game. I know one of his boys, uh, just with one of our students was just practicing our place in Tampa at one point years ago. And I, uh, I think one of his sons, uh, and gives it Brandon. This is pulling a name out of the hat that, that played with Austin Krejcik. Yeah. Some or that Austin, you know, he he, you know, they just helped each. The families helped each other out as far as you know the the challenges of getting one kid from point A to point B. Yeah, I do think yeah. any, anytime you have to wear a helmet, 
Um, how's it go? Uh, collision sports, contact sports, non-contact sports. Um, it, but now I think it's, it's amazing. You know, a lot of kids, they don't play any other sports, especially when they're really young. Um, learn, just learning to be on a team. You know, I think a lot of kind, a lot of kids will, um, go off to college and they, they don't really know how to be a teammate. Yeah. Locker room talk, locker room jockocracy. All of these things are being lost in, in, in this uh, generation for sure. Yeah. With, uh, number four, film your students and document progress, utilize video and analyze constantly strokes, matches, mental and footwork. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, you know, I was joking uh, with you earlier about VHS and all that, but I, I kind of like those days of VHS because when we started here 30 years ago, I used to just have a, uh, a VHS tape for each student. And, you know, it was the, the time and date were stamped in there. And, you know, it just, it was, a, I, I believe we did it quarterly where we just made sure we documented each person quarterly. Now, um, you know, we use the phones and we do that and we have a place we, we store it, but I, I still don't feel it's as effective as it was back in the VHS days. But, you know, I think that the biggest mistake that we make here, I mean, is uh, we don't, uh, you know, document all four, four aspects really of the, uh, we do, we do a ton of video analysis in regard to the strokes, um, Sitting down and analyzing matches is uh, um, something that I think is so critical, studying the film. I mean, you know, after the Dallas Cowboys pulled out that win the other night and knowing they're going to play the Philadelphia Eagles in a, in a huge game on Sunday night here um, in Dallas, that, you know, they, you, you just know that Monday morning, I mean, they, they just went right to work on Philadelphia. They probably didn't even talk about the Seattle game and it was just boom studying film on Philadelphia while their bodies were recovering and tennis players don't do that and it's just I, I was talking about this earlier with a parent it's every tennis tournaments are a hard time to to discuss anything because there's so much emotion and um but if you can uh you know study film it can it can help you you know a little bit more fact-based and keep the emotion out of it and and I think the mental components, filming them, um, you know, I that Swing Vision app that I use, um, I, I like it for for certain re- things because you can, you know, one part of it you can replay the match and it'll only replay the points from the from the moment the serves hit to the end of the point. And, you know, these kids then can watch a recap of their their match play in in twelve minutes. And and uh, but then I thought, well, Swing Vision should make a a similar feature on that where it only begins right when the point ends and it just focuses on the players, you know, between points. And I know you've done that and I've done that and, um, just showing the body language, the rituals, how the player is managing themselves in the 20 ish seconds that they're, they're, uh, they're doing between points. I, I think that'd be a great addition to that swing vision app. But then footwork and physical. Go ahead, Steve. No, I, yeah, I interrupt. Sorry, sorry. With VHS, you know, some of the listeners, younger ones, may not even know what that is. But it's amazing. I think now, with everybody having a 
the iPhone in their pocket, it's almost like there's less filming. I can remember when it was reel to reel, and I tell some I tell a story once in a once in a while, not that often, but you'd go in and it was just like it was this all this tape was on the floor like spaghetti, and then you had to go back and very be very careful to get it back on each reel. But we we used to have to cut it and tape it, and um, you know I have three older brothers. I don't think they when they came up in ice hockey, I don't think they ever saw themselves on, on VHS, but yeah, I one time had, uh, I was working in Co in Rochester where Kodak, who didn't really make the transition to digital, but our program was sponsored by Kodak. And, uh, yeah, we, we had a, each player had a technical tape and a tactical tape. And, you know, we had a special room, um, like a small library where you would just go in and get the tape and, you know, even the camera would be a VHS camera. Um, but yeah, it's, even though technology has improved, it seems like we're doing less. I see where you have footwork down. Um, yeah, I first saw that done with Dennis Vandermeer. We would just film players' feet. I think that's great for, for parents to hear, but teaching pros as well. Um, with, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I know I've seen you. I, I mean, I, I can't remember if I saw it or you just we were talking about it one time. So I started doing it a few years ago, like just filming a kid doing push-ups. And, uh, um, you know, I think it's it's humbling and it's eye-opening for the player. I mean, especially if you if you can get down there yourself and and do a push-up that you know is in pretty good form, and you can rip out ten push-ups yourself, and then to to put a fourteen-year-old down there and and they're doing a push-up that you know, it looks like their body is, is having mild seizures. And, uh, um, with, I think it's, it's important to be able to show that kind of stuff. And, um, people forget where they came from. Um, you know, you, you, you know, you years ago, I remember, I mean, documenting is not just to show the student. It's almost like an attorney kind of covering their rear end with stuff. And, uh, um, but people just have very short memories. They they forget that they were uh, at a certain point when they walked through the door, and um, and they start to typically have a little success, and they still have a ton of work to do. But I think it's a it's a good way to remind people that you know they're in lap one, and there's there's several more laps to go, and there's where you were, and now it's it's not time to to reset the course. Really, it's just time to stay the course. Yeah, you got to fight tennis snobbery where uh, kids get better and then they don't want to hit and help out lesser lesser players. Um, they don't remember where where they were. Yeah, that, I tell people the number one reason I documented is no one's going to come back and tell me uh, you did improve my game. You know, the, the Vic Braden thing, as Vic used to say, what game? That kid's got no game. He's lucky to find the bathroom. Uh, mm-hmm. I've said, I've told this story on the podcast before. Jeff Lewis puts this together where Vic and I, um, did clinics together. It was, a, you know, the first time where, you know, I spoke, Vic spoke and, and, and Vic actually, he, he loved, uh, um, you know, the, um, the idea of filming and skill testing and, you know, really letting the, the, not only the player, but the, the parent, uh, it's, you know, to know truly where the kid is. I mean, if it was a reading level, you feed 25 shots, the kid makes 10, they're at 40%. Um, let people know that right away. But I think also the, the, the tennis teachers have to realize that, you know, sure enough, it can be labor intensive. Um, 
you know, we'll get the camera out, but it's a lot easier to just roll the ball out and start feeding balls instead of, you know, filming. And even when then you go home and you're creating work, you know, the lesson is done, but yeah, you're going back and, and added, added value. You're, you're still providing, um, you know, additional time, additional effort for the student. Mm-hmm. Um, number five, film an entire lesson weekly for your viewing. It's interesting with security cameras now, uh, that wasn't so much the case years ago, but um, a lot of times uh, people are being filmed, they don't even know it. Be critical yeah. of your teaching and ask if you would pay for the lesson. Um, go ahead, comment on that. Well, and again, I think I got this idea from you in the, in the 80s. Um, but when I went off to, you know, work with Carter, I actually did this. Um, and, uh, you know, there was uh, there was a period there where I was, you know, filming. I just set the camera up in the corner and just film my lessons and kind of look at everything that I was doing. Um, on a coaching end was I, how I was feeding, how I was demoing. Um, was I getting the look out of the students in terms of the shapes of the swings and whatever that I wanted to. And I, I'd try to film varieties of lessons. Sometimes I'd film teaching a group of six ladies, you know, just kind of a uh, hit and giggle, but I, I just wanted to get a feel for what I was doing and how I could get better at it. And so I did that for, for several years. Um, it's something I think I could go back and do, to be honest. And, uh, um, but I, I, I think it's important to, you know, was I hustling to help with balls? Um, you know, if it was a private lesson, little things, I mean, did I, did I do simple things like say thank you at the end of the lesson? Um, it's easy to fall out of habits. And, uh, uh, this thing I think for me really helped, um, helped me understand how far I had to go. Um, and then, you know, it, it was also encouraging when you felt like, okay, that, that was really working. That, 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 that seemed to, to be productive in what I was trying to accomplish. But I think that we, uh, you know, we, we could, I think everybody can benefit from that actually critiquing their tennis lesson. Um, we do, you know, and we got to get back to it because COVID changed things and, and we've fallen out of the habit, but we have a staff training, you know, and, um, we have, you know, senior staff that have really been involved in it for a long time. And, uh, we literally, you know, with 24 coaches, I mean, we'll divide up onto four courts and, um, teachers are teaching the teachers and then we're filming and then we're critiquing and the senior person is kind of critiquing how the critique went. And, and so, uh, it helps accelerate the learning and it helps, uh, give everybody an idea of kind of, you know, what we're trying to accomplish as a group of pros, but. I think individually it can really help you if you just do it on your own court, see what you look like. And, and, and most importantly at the end, I mean, I, you know, you, you know, when you've dialed it in as a coach and you, you haven't really um, given your best effort. And, you know, I always, I think it's kind of hypocritical as a coach to, to think you can go out and teach a, teach a poor hour. And um, then you ask players to, you know, just show up every day to practice and, 
and uh, give everything and be engaged. And, and so, um, yeah, you made a, you a lot of great points. Uh, I love the one to, uh, you know, teach, keep teaching, teach during the ball, during the ball pickup. You know, that's not a time yeah. for the, you know, put the cell phone away and you're not chit chatting with a coach who's not working on the next court. Well, here's something uh, that is fantastic. I know the renovations at your club, you've talked about, what's the name of the indoor court number? What's the number? Is it 10, the covered court you're on? Well, I used to be on nine. nine. That nine, nine was the, the first one there. And now the I'm machine. right behind it. The ball machine. Yeah, the ball machine. Yeah, that's is, is that still there? The ball yeah, machine? that's the one I'm on. I'm still on that. Yeah, ball machine's still there going strong. So yeah. You, so you're right next to adjacent that court. Yeah, it was 13. Now it's number 19. But, you know, this comes from Braden where you turn the ball machine on, students on the baseline just hitting, you know, basic forehands, backhands. And then as soon as the ball comes out of the machine, you stand, you don't block their, their image, their, their body. So the camera's capturing both the hitter and the teacher behind and then the teacher shadow swings. So if it's a first time player coming out and, you know, they don't have the ready position, the unit turn, the racket's down and the backswing goes way behind their back. And it's a great way to show the contrast. This is what you're doing and this is what you need to do. Um, and, you know, but that, you know, it doesn't really cover that much ingenuity. You need a ball machine. If it's going to be a, just yourself with, um, you know, no one else helping you out. Many times I have the the privilege of having a student assistant helping me. I know you do as well. But you just put up the tripod, and uh, Vic we, Vic used to have the the cameras were built right into the fence, and you would just turn a switch, and the students didn't even know they were being filmed. It was just just amazing. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, so one is that you know we say the baseline, uh, you know, the person's on the other side of the net hitting the ball to you know, your student. So when the ball comes, say the ball machine's feeding it, the ball machine's at line one, the baseline, the ball machine's on, then the service line is two, the net would be a line, that's three. The hitter, the students, their their service line is four, then the baseline is five. And, you know, they're just starting to turn when the ball's at the net. Um, their recognition skills, their reading skills are, are very slow. You know, back yeah. in the day, we used to uh, have... Uh, these light, small knapsacks and people used to teach and they would carry a tape recorder. And then what they had to do is they had to uh, create, um, what do you call it? A manuscript um, of everything they said, you know, just word Mm -hmm. by word. And so tape, not only just not the video, but also the audio um, and, you know, um, you know, people running a drill session and they're just feeding balls. It's, uh, you know, a lot of times it's just go, 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 turn, 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 move, move, move. But to actually listen to yourself and does it make any sense? Um, yeah, the word would be critical to, uh, be your own best critic. Yeah, definitely. Number six, attend conferences. Join the USPTA PTR. Go ahead. Yeah, I think, you know, you've said it for decades. I mean, it, I don't think it's fair of any, any, for anybody to critique anything they really haven't been a part of. And, um, you know, it, uh, oftentimes I'll get asked about a coach or some program or something. I, and I, if I haven't witnessed them, 
in action if I haven't studied, you know, seen them work. I I really can't say much. I can see a result in what they're producing, but um, it's like with USPTA, USPTRA, um, USTA. I, I've served on a lot of different boards uh, for the USTA committees. Um, been a member of PTA, PTR for a lengthy amount of time, and um, you know, I think it's important to do. I think it's just a, a step. It shows you're committed and, uh, you know, going to the conferences, um, go to the conferences and, and go to the, go with the idea that if you pick up one thing or two things or three things, it's been a victory. Um, I like you, I, I don't know. I've fallen out of it. I mean, uh, I haven't been going to them as, as, as I did in my first 20 years of, of doing this. And, I've kind of made that a goal to, you know, I come out to your next conference and, and, uh, start kind of hitting those again. Um, I think myself, like many other people kind of find ourselves in a state of time poverty, but, uh, the reality is, I mean, you just have to make time, um, got to find it somehow. With conferences also, um, you know, actually making contact and see if you can go visit a program, you know, all you, yeah. and, you know, just, you know, I think you, know, you can politely ask, is there a fee I would like to come by? And, you know, people need to know how to be an observer too. You can be, you know, you need to be a passive observer. If someone's teaching, you know, you don't talk to them while they're teaching, you know, can I just come in and be a fly on the wall and, and, you know, pay a nominal fee or pay out fee and, um, I don't think enough of that goes on. You've been in Dallas now for so long and had so much success. Um, I'm going to guess not too many people, uh, young pros, uh, seek you out. And, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, it was like, okay, that that was going on. People wanted to come by and they were just very proactive. I think that's also, you know, being able to stay home and just push the keyboard and think that you're actually being trained via the internet. Now, the internet helps but it doesn't replace bricks and mortars actually going to a place. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have a few former coaches that come down and, you know, still keep their saw sharp, stay connected in that way. And, um, a few guys from, uh, the, uh, conference we just did out down in Austin with Carter, uh, Mike Carter, they, uh, have reached out and asked about coming out. So we, we get it periodically, but not like, not like it was back in the day. No. With, you know, you mentioned other sports. Um, you should, you can also go to conferences for other sports. You, mm-hmm. you know, if, I mean, Dallas is a city unto itself. Uh, you know, anything and everything is going on in Dallas. If uh, a tennis coach wants to learn about sport, they certainly could go to track and field. They could go to soccer. And, um, yeah, you doesn't have to be, you're just going to go to the USPTA or PTR conferences. Um, definitely number seven yeah, you could, you, go ahead yeah number yeah. seven go ahead stay go physically ahead. fit rigorous teaching schedule demands a healthy lifestyle um yeah you need energy uh you, you just you know yeah you can't say it any other way you need energy you, you just uh you got to be pumped up it's you know scotty perlman new day new opportunity to excel but what comes to your mind it's physically fit well, I think tennis pros, um, historically, 
become very unfit um, if you're not careful. Uh, you can you can actually have kind of a sedentary lifestyle, coaching, teaching. Um, you know, my dad. I think he went to his grave not even realizing really. You know, he was. He, I'm not sure he ever accepted tennis as a sport, um, but um, I think he thought that I played tennis all day. I think that's what he really thought I did. And uh, but you don't. You know, you, when you're coaching and teaching, your 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 own game's so far on the back burner. And it doesn't mean you can't play and hit balls and and still have goals for yourself. But uh, I think it's very easy to get uh, out of shape if you're if you're coaching and teaching very effectively. And I think you have to make time to uh, stay fit and uh, you know certainly lead as healthy a lifestyle as you can. Because, like you said, I mean, energy creates energy, and you have to be able to uh, you have to be able to bounce when you when you need to. And it's certainly a lot easier to do that when you're, you know, when you're at at your fighting weight and and uh, you have a little bit of muscle tone and and uh, you feel if you get put in a situation where you have to stand in a corner even and have people hit balls and you run them around that you can do that. So I, I think it's very important. I, I just think. I mean, not not just from tennis, but I, I think it just helps set the, the, the proper example, too, for a healthy lifestyle for what we're trying to promote with people. With, you know, staying physically fit for young coaches, especially if they're not leading. You know, I know I've been in a situation for a long, long time where I've got a whistle around my neck and there's a ton of variables. But if you're a support coach, jump right in and do the exercises with the kids. You know, we love to do the animal kingdom. You can YouTube animal kingdom. And, you know, I wouldn't start with a frog jump. I would uh, make sure you only do the duck walk one time to the net. So, you know, some kids are going to complain. And Eric Hyden used to do a mile that the, the speed skater um, every day before school. Uh, but there's a caterpillar, there's a swan, there's the monkey, you know, you go the bear walk, the, the crab walk and, um, but if, you know, Braden, if you expect your students to do it, you, you need to do it, um, with, uh, yeah, back in the day, um, you know, I remember, uh, my brother became the assistant coach of the New York Rangers and, um, you know, it's actually comical now to look back what they were asked to do for summer fitness, but just, you're going to get respect from your players. You know, again, you don't have to be the greatest player. A lot of people get into uh, the sport late, but, you know, you're working on running technique, jump in line and work on running technique. But I do think that the the coaches will gather together and, you know, they're looking for a coffee. You know, there's no time for a coffee. I mean, the the lesson starts and it's like, let's go. Um, Mm -hmm. You just think, well, it all ties together. You mentioned character from other sports. Um, you know, really good football coaches aren't—they're aren't, you know, not on coffee break. Uh, you know, they need both hands to demonstrate, and it's like, you know, let's go. They got the juice flowing, and there's some intensity being pumped out. Yeah, so look, um, stay connected to the sport, play tennis, follow tennis, be able to talk the sport. Go ahead on that one. Well, I think, you know, I. <laughs> 
going back to conferences, I mean, it uh, seems like one of the biggest highlights of some of the national conferences is the golf outing at our national tennis conferences, USPTA, USPTR. And, um, you know, I think that's even probably more supported than the, what they, when they used to have the USPTA tournaments or PTR tournaments. Um, but I think that you got to stay connected to the sport. I mean, it's inspiring to see uh, when you're at a club and see uh, some of your coaches out there working on their games. Um, and, uh, you know, basically walking down the same path that you're, that you're, that they're trying to get you to walk down to, to keep hitting balls, follow tennis, um, have awareness of what's going on, um, in the tennis industry, in the tennis world. Um, I'm kind of shocked that, uh, so many people in the sport of tennis making a living out of it really don't follow it that much. And, and therefore, you know, are unable to, to talk about the sport to people, um, and I think that all of that kind of is uh, more of a newer phenomenon where maybe it wasn't so much like that. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I'm, I, I feel like it wasn't, but I think that this kind of disconnect, um, you know, it makes it challenging uh, for these younger pros to not walk away from the sport. Uh, and, and maybe say, oh, you know, I'll give, I'll give teaching pickleball a try too, or Padel and this and that. And I think when you, when you're connected to something, you know, your loyalty to it is, is, is going to get stronger and stronger. And, uh, I just think, uh, your students can feel it. Um, I think the people around you can feel it. And, uh, you know, I always use the expression, I think you got to bleed the, the sport if, if they, if they cut you, you know your your blood should uh you should have a little tennis in your blood yeah get some blood in the game uh with peter burwash i love the idea the late peter burwash you know be two percent selfish and work on your own game so when you're feeding you're demonstrating uh you know Braden was a master of that he wanted you know dennis vanderer too i mean they they definitely were they're going to be able to demonstrate and demonstrate well yeah it's interesting to me you know um, I've been talking to some people recently about a sparring partner and people have heard me say, you, you want a sparring partner realizes that they're just a sparring partner. You know, the basket or no boxing, the sparring partner wears a helmet, the mouth guard, and they don't say anything with the tennis sparring partner. They start to talk, you know, they say something and they have nothing to say, but a sparring partner should be able to mimic playing styles. Hey, this is, you know, some, mm-hmm. someone's going to loop the ball. You know, someone's going to play, um, you know, this pattern or this variation. Um, but that only comes from what you've got down here is that you have to be able to talk the sport. You know, I think, you know, like say in Ash Barty, uh, the rate of forgetting scary. You know, people should not, you know, we're talking about carry the torch for the people of the past on the tennis teaching side. But the players, I think, you know, people in general, you know, Ash Barty retired, but she was such a complete player could play all zones of the mm-hmm. court, um, could play doubles. Um, but, um, you know, and also too now, it, it's all at your fingertips with YouTube. But, I, you know, you could look up Ash Barty. Um, I do think that, you know, the coaches as well, 
as the parents, everybody is like, well, I've got my own thing I can do on my phone. I mean, you know, um, yeah, I did this one time with a group of juniors. I took them by, um, I had a place for three years and they, right next to the USDA national campus, Lake Nona. And actually, uh, Francis Tiafoe was kind of cool. He would buy a skateboard. He was listening to some music with a headset. But I said, all right, I said, we're going to park right here. You know, it was uh, one of those Chipotle runs. Everybody likes to go to Chipotle. And uh, I said, we're going to stand right here. School's going to get out. And we're going to count how many kids walk by. And everybody's got their tally. And we're going to count how many kids walk by and how many kids are just looking at their telephone. You know, they're, they're, they're safe. They're on the sidewalk. You know, they're not going to get hit by a car. And it was amazing, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, I just, just read an article where, um, you know, not, not letting, can you imagine that? Not letting kids in uh, elementary and junior high look at their cell phone during the day. You know, it'd just be, you know, that, that would, it didn't exist before. So the rule, the rule didn't have to be in place. But um, yeah, with, I think many people just shut it down. The lesson's over, they're done. And, you know, they're, even when they play a match, um, you know, there's no reflective thought, you know, two types of thought, reactive, reflective. And that's, you know, that's for the, that's for the teaching pro. Same thing with a lesson. Um, how's it go? You know, yeah, the person taught 30 years, but they only had one year experience because they kept doing the same thing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the camaraderie among pros and, you know, are, is there a chit chat on, you know, what are we doing how could we do it better? Um, number nine on a weekly basis teach a number of pro bono lessons. Why don't you tell us what that is? Give back to tennis, give back to people. Pro bono. Well, I, yeah. I I think that it's important to uh, figure out um, how you can, you know, find time in your life to, you know, teach tennis without any monetary reward. There's, there's people out there that, uh, um, you know, a private lesson is costly and, um, you know, and, and picking somebody who maybe isn't capable of funding it or picking somebody who is, uh, really earned it and, and just taking them and, and giving them additional time through the course of your week. Um, I think it's important, uh, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, not only it, it's a funny thing because I've done it my whole life and, um, there's a freedom to it. Uh, I think from a teaching standpoint, uh, and I don't mean that you give it half an effort or anything, but there's just a beauty to it. Um, and I think it helps you as a teacher really appreciate, uh, what it is that you get to do each day. Um, I, I highly recommend it. Um, you know, I think that if you run a program, um, it's also important to, uh, you know, try to reach out in the community and offer some scholarship assistance to some people that really need it, that, you know, you can really make a difference in their life by giving them an opportunity to, to play the sport of tennis and kind of getting behind them and, and, and changing lives a little different than the backroom deal where you, you know, are out recruiting some high level players to, to try to draw people in. 
I think it's it's the other end of that, but I think it's it's, it's very important. With uh, the term pro bono, I know it's a freebie. Um, curious, I, I never really uh, researched that to where, where that term comes from. Do you have any idea off the top of your head, pro bono? No, I mean, I know that you hear it more in conjunction with lawyers right. and attorneys doing pro bono work, but uh, um, I'm not sure of the, the source of it. But yeah. That might be a good good thing for Andre. So I'm going to actually run into him, I think, maybe down in uh, Miami next week. Okay. You going down to the Orange Bowl? I'm going to go down on uh, Wednesday for just two days. Um, exceed expectations, added value. I think when it comes down to going beyond the call of duty, uh, you know, don't just teach by looking at the clock and, um, you know, yeah, you're, you greet people and you know them and, you know, you know, maybe they're not, you know, one of your students, but they're one of your fellow pro students and you know their name and you say, how's your tennis going? And are you after it? And, um, yeah, I think, you know, not looking like what's in it for me, just be that cash register pro. Um, yeah, even if it's just giving a tip, um, when you walk by courts, I mean, I, I always tell our staff, I mean, it, it's nonstop the action and, you know, to walk by the courts and just say, hey, you know, do you mind if I share something with you? And uh, I mean, most people, it really means a lot to them. And we have just, so much opportunity for that. And I think everybody does really. And, and, you know, in, in my case, I teach right next to a ball machine. I mean, it. uh, um, I hate to see somebody get, you know, to use your phrase, you know, they keep getting better at getting worse. So the person on the ball machine is almost guaranteed a lesson. Um, they're going to get a tip almost every time. And I always tell our coaches when they walk by there, um, you, sh- you know, you don't have to say much, but, Say something, say something to somebody that's hitting the ball in a way that isn't helping them, and try to get them on the right track. Yeah, I mean, Braden, uh, I can remember I was uh, fortunate to be a hitting partner for Tim Gullickson, and um, with you know, there's a player three courts down, and you know, next thing you know is uh, Gully and I are hitting on the court, and Vic's three courts down helping a junior. Um, you know. That's, that was just Braden is that, you know, the person has a problem with your game. And of course he had the personality to pull it off. Um, you know, you got to be upbeat and go, Hey, you know, I was watching you play. If you could just try to do this, um, and don't come across like you're, you know, hustling someone for another lesson. Um, yeah. Chapter of my life was going to the battle of Boca, you know, great service is right, right there. It's, you know, every weekend and, you know, sure enough. Okay. There could be doubles. They could not, play shortened matches they didn't the entry fee could be less but it's a great service to the public and there's so many people hitting you know handing out business cards and everything's a hundred dollars an hour um i used to love to listen to ziggy ziegler had a lot of his tapes a motivational speaker so funny and he used to tell a story about uh two guys went to work for the railroad and one guy was still you know doing basically the same job he started with and the other guy was uh president of the railroad and they asked the gentleman uh how did his friend become uh president you both started 
at the same time. He goes, oh, that's easy. I, I work for $1.75 an hour and he worked for the railroad. I mean, you, you really work, you really, in a lot of ways, I tell young people, you work for yourself. You don't think that you really have a boss. You work for yourself. But also, too, is you need to work for tennis. You know, you'll, you know, it'll always come back to you. If you go the distance, it'll always come back to you. And um, I think also the psychic income for the, the tennis teaching professional, if they're not really pumped up to have their students get better, um, they're going to be pretty flat. You know, I think there's a lot of, in the past, you say a lot of people teaching tennis that want to sell real estate and a lot of people selling real estate that want to teach tennis. Um, another analogy I've used is that maybe because I did this so much when I was a kid is mowed lawns is, you know, it's hot, it's sweaty, it's noisy. And, um, you're out there in the heat, the outdoor season. And I mean, it's like, if you're not competent, you're pushing the lawnmower. It doesn't have a blade. So then you're, you're done and there's not a sense of accomplishment. I've also said too, that watching tennis players improve is like watching paint dry. It's like watching grass grow. It doesn't happen, you know, leaps and bounds. I think it does initially when you're meeting a student for the first time that it's pretty easy for them to make technical changes in a technical setting. But, um, no, I think that's a great, great tip. Um, you know, I've done this mostly with players, but it works with teaching pros as well as the song I, me just say, I, me, I, me, that's the junior tennis song. But I think also too, is that, you know, too many people are, are thinking, I, me, I, me, you know, what, what's in it for, what's in it for, what's in it for me instead of what's in it for the good of the game. And, um, you know, tennis, we all need to help tennis and everybody needs to say, what, what, what can I do extra? You know, the, um, you know, that's, you know, going one step further. How about number 10? Uh, this is one uh, I think I could understand. Follow the great base. Tennis Intelligence Applied, Facebook, Instagram, um, podcasts, workshops, observation. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't understand why somebody inside of the tennis teaching, coaching profession wouldn't um, delve into it and just, I mean, really dive into it and just go. And, uh, um, but anyone who does do it and, um, will come out of it different and better and really set, I think themselves on a, on a coaching and teaching path that is far more enjoyable, far more productive. And I think the productivity is why it'll be more enjoyable. It's fun to see people improve. And, um, but it, uh, it's so critical that, you know, when, when I say dive into it, you can't just, you can't dip, you can't, you can't wade into it, uh, and just go knee deep and then walk out of it and think, uh, you have the experience you have to, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the word, uh, that you use the immersion when people come in to take part in it as, as a player, typically coming to see you. And it's the same thing. And I think it goes back and ties into, you know, the second point that we talked about developing an obsession with learning and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great, great method to, um, acquire a lot of the science and the art. And then, you know, then from there, that's a starting point and it, and, and it's now 
up to the individual to, on a daily basis, try to, uh, you know, figure out how to use all those things and, and, and apply them. And, but it's, it's a plan. It's a map that can get you going in a very positive direction. With uh, Let's flip it and go on the, uh, the don'ts, but that's a, a great point to end the, the do's with. Uh, yeah. Assume. Assume that your yeah, playing experience has prepared has, has prepared you for a, cre- a career in teaching tennis and coaching tennis. Now that's uh, one close to my heart. Go ahead, take, give us a few comments on that one. Well, I've, we talked about it a little bit uh, before. How um, most uh, a majority of people who who get into this, especially right out of college, I mean, it's just a, a transition for them to suddenly get into uh, coaching tennis and, and, you know, they, the, the playing experience and, and all of the things they may have done, you know, from a young age up to age 22, 23, it certainly hasn't uh, been a negative, but it's by no means prepared one to um, teach and coach uh, effectively because historically what it's going to do is, the person's only going to teach and coach as they recall how they were taught or coached. And, um, and their memory of that usually isn't even very effective. Um, and it usually just falls back on their most recent memory of maybe when they came out of college tennis where, you know, the, the kind of generic workout that might take place on so many college campuses, not all of them, but, where they're dealing with 18 to 22 year olds who are um, uh, at a different stage of life, different, you know, situation and, and they're hitting cross courts and doing high lows at the net and then playing some points and things of that nature. Um, that's, that's not really going to ready somebody to, 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 to delve into the, the teaching and coaching profession. And I think that's why they end up migrating to being primarily third base coaches where they realize, I mean, again, it, it, nobody wants to be put in a situation where they're exposed. And uh, so you can be less exposed the more advanced players that you grab hold of. Um, your, your, your skills can be, your skill sets as a teacher and coach can be hidden actually much easier the more advanced players that you work with. And I think you have said that before. And uh, so it, I, I think that, you know, you got to come into it with a lot of humility. Um, doesn't mean you have to lack belief or in yourself or confidence or anything, but just humility that because number one on the don'ts ties into number one on the do's, and that is set your course to, to serve some sort of apprenticeship for a significant amount of time um, while you enter into the career. No, it's well put. I think with... Uh... Uh, ego comes into it, you know, just because you play the game doesn't mean that you can teach the game. It certainly is a bonus. Uh, that's where Welby Van Horn, you know, arguably uh, the best, uh, right up there, most notable career as both a player and a teacher, but I didn't say player and coach. Welby, you know, the way he introduced the game to beginners with body balance is just, I've never seen anything better. And uh, and he had the track record to to improve that. Um, 
Um, enter the profession focused only on working with high performance players. This is this is a major problem in tennis. Diversify your schedule and you will do better long-term. All levels, all ages, groups, and privates. Go ahead on that one. I think it's important. I, I think that, you know, it. Uh, I don't want to mention names, but I, you know, I'm in the process of trying to acquire a couple more people on staff. And, you know, in this day and time, you have to kiss a lot of frogs to try to get a prince and, uh, um, so I had a player in here the other day or, and, uh, a, a candidate rather. And, you know, I had him involved in our program, online school program, which goes during the day with, you know, tournament level kids. And, and, uh, I said, well, let's you can take a break and then meet me back here at four thirty, And, you know, I'll have you observe the uh, early childhood program and, and some of the grassroots stuff. And, and the, the guy looked at me and said, I don't do little kids. And, uh, you know, we have a need for a guy like that that actually just wants to bang balls. Believe me, we, we could actually use somebody like that. But I think that's just a common attitude these days. And, uh, um, but diversifying your schedule, I think, is how you learn to teach. I think it's, um, you know, I look at some of the coaches that have helped my wife here over the last three years and and watch her hit a backhand, and, um, you know, it's impressive. They've done great work with her. Um, and, you know, they can, they, they can really teach tennis, and I trust them with any uh, tournament-level kid that I have. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the, more, the more diversity you have in your schedule, um, especially when you're early on in your career, um, the better you're going to learn to teach the game. Uh, I think the, the group dynamics, the um, knowing when to work within a player's game. I mean, you might have six ladies out there and, you know, you, you know, learning to give tips and trying to mold people in a different way um, because there's just so many ways to, to apply the information. And, and I think that that's the only way to do it is through diversification of your schedule. Yeah. With your schedule too, as I think, um, you owe, owe Willie shooty a phone call, uh, coffee with Willie. He called me the other day. He's got a, a telephone tag. Need to get a hold of him. And, you know, he got the people my age, um, early in the morning out there having coffee with Willie, you know, make it happen, you know, uh, fill the courts. Be a, be a Pied Piper. I think one and two really tie in with each other. I think the analogy, well, I'm a reading instructor, but I only work with fast readers. I don't mess with slow readers. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, shut up. I mean, if you know, really, um, you've got, you got to be able to teach a beginner. I mean, as you said earlier, it's all one and the same and a forehand's a forehand, but what they want, what they want to do is going to be a glorified sparring partner. I think far too often here in the U S is the director of tennis. You know, they're the ones with a salary. They're the ones getting a percentage from what the pros teach many times. And, you know, they're just on center court and they're hitting with a the kid they think's pretty good and pretty good usually means pretty bad. It's like, okay. I mean, we know that small cities and large clubs, they don't for the most part produce one college tennis player per year. And, you know, what's the production? And um, I don't think it's right to say, well, we're just trying to raise good members. 
You know, if people sign up for a tennis lesson, you know, they, it can be a recreational path, but the competency is the same. It's just the pace of the lesson or the intensity of the lesson. You know, maybe it doesn't involve as much character one-on-one, but you know, it's still high, low, high, inside out, long hitting zone, using your body, body parts properly. Um, yeah. With, uh, then also learning to communicate. Um, you know, I, I think it's great for say entry level pro where, you know, they are, uh, conversing, um, with adults. Um, you know, it used to be, you can go way back, uh, Steve Robertson, who was a guest on our podcast, uh, Gen Z. Now we're to the, uh, Gen Alpha and, um, it used to be that three generations would be in one room watching a ball game or, you know, maybe it's the news or a movie. And now it's like kids don't even greet adults. So, you know, if someone is, uh, how's it go? If, um, someone's an uncoachable kid, they're going to be un- unemployable as well. So interacting and also bringing a, a tennis culture, a tennis community to the forefront where it's up to the coaches that, they're all introducing each other to, to the, the clientele. I, and I don't really like that word. Well, these are my clients. But um, yeah, so if they don't have a diversified schedule, they're in, in the end, well, okay, you're only talking to 15 people at the club and they're just 15 perhaps advanced juniors instead of talking to everybody. Um, you know, Nick Boletari, there are a lot of pluses about the late Boletari is, um, you know, to really to connect with the moms and connect with everybody, the whole family. Um, don't uh, teach only when paid. You've touched upon that. You will not develop the coaching myelin needed to master your skills. 50 to 60 hours weekly, your first 20 years will help solidify your pathway. Doug Cash, smart man, uh, cash flow tennis. Um, you know, so much about the business side of tennis. Um, you know, maybe it's changed, but it was, uh, I think 55 hours a week, day and a half off and, you know, at least 35 hours minimum of that should be on the court. You know, are you a producer or parasite? Are you producing or are you, you know, you're just living off the game? Um, but that's a healthy amount of hours, 56 hours weekly, um, coaching myelin. I don't think people think of it that way. Why do you comment on, on your number three? We lost him, listeners. Hang on. Hello, Dave. Hello. Hey, Davey Anderson. Yo. Coaching Milan. Did you cut me off? Yeah, you hung cut up on me. me. You, you hung up on me. Freddie, Freddie Foreman called you and hung up on me. Hey, Coaching Milan, touch upon yeah, that and that, uh, go forward. I think that uh, it ties in with a lot of the other things that we've talked about that um, you got to be obsessed with learning. Um, if you only look to get knowledge and learning and experience when you're getting paid, you're not going to get there quick enough. You won't, you won't, uh, you, you won't gain what you need. Um, I also think that, you know, it just, when you, when you're early on in your, 
um, in your career path as a tennis teacher and or you know coach you should just really live on the court um it's just a mentality of you know getting there and just teaching and uh you know you might have gaps in your schedule that's where you can you know have grab a banana out of your pack lunch and and uh and pull a student aside and and just continue to teach and 50 to 60 hours a week is you know to me very reasonable for anybody um it you know over six days i mean that's you know you know between eight and ten hours a day and uh um you know good things will happen if you you know from a from the standpoint of taking care of yourself too i mean uh people notice that stuff and they'll notice the passion and and you'll eventually become a very sought after coach in all likelihood if you if you do a good job of it and um but i i just think it's critical um you know if that's your goal to 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 try to become the best teacher and coach you can become um i i don't think it can be done any other way personally no i agree i think I, you I, can I, become pretty good yeah but pretty good is pretty bad i i've been a guest to coach a clinician at your place brookhaven country club dallas everyone beautiful beautiful place it's like a tennis village unto itself with i've had so many coaches at your place tell me no one work can work like dave i go i can and they don't even hear me say that i can but they're stuck on no one can work like dave and i said no son gets up he's on the court son goes down he's off the court basically and i said when you're not giving a lesson you know don't go across the street and you know, have a muffin is just go sit on his court. And, you know, certainly if you have to do some emails, now they can do it on their phone. And yeah, I guess the best thing to do is to just be around it. You got to love it. Got to love it. Um, you know, I was thinking of Patrick Gibson the other day. Um, I went to do a clinic in North Carolina, this beautiful place, Cary Park. And, mm-hmm. you know, at that time, you know, he lived in his, his, understand his parents now live in Raleigh, but he lived a you know, a good distance away, you know, right within North Carolina, maybe, maybe 45 minutes away, but he was staying with his grandparents. And so I show up to do this clinic. He's 11 years old. Matt, he was being coached by Matt Clore. And uh, I said, you're not playing today? And he said, no, my, my grandparents told me uh, um, I need rest. I have to watch. I said, so you're just watching? And I mean, that's passion. That's passion. And mm-hmm. um, with you have to watch people teach tennis. You have to, I mean, he's, you know, how are, how are you going to get better at it? And it's, it's mind boggling how so few places have any type of continuity, common denominators, any orientation. What is a three-legged stool? Divide players from parents. Yeah, that, that's on the don'ts. Don't try to divide the players from their parents. Instead, try and develop the three-legged stool. The, okay. You know, the, the journey, um, you know, uh, really junior tennis, uh, if you're involved heavily in coaching, teaching juniors. And, um, you know, it seems like, you know, it's very challenging, right? Everything. Uh, And um, I think that it's, it's, I've made the mistake historically, um, especially years back. And, you know, you might make some loose comments. And I think that, you know, dividing players from their parents, meaning trying to, you know, anything that's a blame game, um, 
and uh, uh, I see that a lot uh, inside of the junior game. Um, you know, you were talking about how parents talk about coaches, coaches talk about parents, but I think the more that you know that that the roles can be clear. Uh, again, going back to Jim Lehrer's book, playing player, parent, coach handbook, um, and getting that thing working in alignment, um, and, and rather than fighting each other, um, kids are clever. They'll try to use coaches as a sounding board and get them to speak up, and you know, almost kind of come onto their side against parents. Often, I, I found in junior tennis, and then you know they're doing the same thing back home to you. So. You know, the, the 10 do's and don'ts for, for parents a few weeks back, and now this one for teachers and coaches, we really should uh, have a similar list for, for players. Yeah, and um, administrators too. Um, exactly. The, the whole gamut. But the three-legged stool is the triangle. It's getting the parent, the player, and the yeah teaching program yeah. on and the just, same page. Yeah, just balancing the stool. Here's a good one. Don't teach the flavor of the month. I can remember uh, – Tennis magazine back in the day, and this is a concern. It used to be like a small telephone book. It was thick, and it's uh, it used to be where there could be one article on the forehand that would contradict another article on the forehand in the same magazine. Um, and yeah, and people would be, you know, flavor of the month. Um, use fact-based principles as your foundation and build your coaching house. Want to comment on that for a second? Well, I think the flavor of the month has been exacerbated because of the cell phone and the access to YouTube and Instagram and what have you. And, uh, I mean, it is, it's worse now in my opinion, um, than it ever has been. And, you know, if somebody, if somebody's hot on the tour, um, you know, people trying to mimic it and, uh, you know, it always, I always go back to that period where, um, you look at Agassi, look at Sampras, um, and, you know, in some ways they didn't have as great an impact as people. And then, then you look at the impact like TFO had, um, uh, or Dominique team before he, you know, made adjustments on his forehand with his racket, almost horizontal to the ground above his head on his backswing on his forehand. And, you know, it's, it's funny how people will copy something because it's quirky. Um, and because of this flavor of the month, uh, cause the player looks cool or they may hit the ball a little harder or, or what have you. Um, and then, you know, coaches, I think, you know, buy off on that as well. And, uh, that's, um, how they go about their career and, and they kind of just ebb and flow between those things you know, depending on what's hot and what's not. And, um, I, I really, to be honest, I feel like those kind of, that, that approach to coaching and teaching leads one to a very unfulfilling career, unfulfilled career and, uh, possibly burnout. Um, you're not going to see the results. You're not going to, uh, you know, be able to feel good about what you do day in and day out. And burn out the frustration factor. The other, the other name for it is, uh, can't, mm -hmm. can't burn out if you catch on fire, but yeah, we, you know, we do use that term, um, you know, flavor of the month. I mean, there's supremacy. Well, if some kids you know, on the boys side, especially the macho male ego, someone played D one tennis, they think they're a better coach than someone played D two tennis. I mean, it just gets downright stupid, but 
something else that is really stupid. I mean, it's so important. Okay, let's look at the pros that impact. And when we talk about pros, you know, we're saying, okay, let's learn from the pros. It's not like, well, the pros should, you know, they should change their games. Um, but I'm always telling people, remember, we're not teaching pros. Uh, like, for example, mm-hmm. on the backhand, the two-handed backhand, yeah, we know that the pros have a continental grip on the bottom hand and the, you know, left, say a righty, the left hand really dominates the hypertrophy in the forearm, you know, ex- muscle expansion. But no, we're going to get the grip on the right side of one. We're talking about an inch of a fraction of an inch of an inch because it's going to help close the racket head. And that's what they're going to do. So they don't swing east and west on their um, underspin backhand, their slice. And then they're, they're not going to avoid the net because they have such a weak grip. Um, I love this next one. Uh, live the same day twice. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's critical. I mean, I think it's important from a motivational standpoint for somebody to, you know, to, to wake up in the morning and, um, you know, have the approach like they're, you know, even it's not like you're going just to teach tennis. I mean, there's just always something new to be done inside of each student, even if you see them each and every day. And uh, even if it's a similar thing that you're doing, you know, I'll never forget something that uh, um, Fran Kruger, Ashlyn Kruger's mom said to me a few years back. Um, because, you know, each day we were just repping out the same reps and, uh, and I said, Hey, I said, I think that's why she is who she is and has a great chance to make it is, um, you know, she's willing to come out here each day and just go through this. And I said, that's, that's rare. That's hard to find. And, and I don't say this in an egotistical way or anything, but the mom said, yeah, it's, it's actually harder to find a coach that wants to. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of hit me there. You, you know, you gotta be, you gotta get excited to do some things that are similar, but you can't live the same day twice. You, you've got to, you've got to have an exploring mind in how you go about it. And, and you've got to go in with the attitude of you're, you're, you might have to do some of the same things, but you're going to progress and it's, it's going to alter the way the day is compared to yesterday. Um, well, yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta work like a gardener. You gotta get down on your hands and knees and, uh, you know, certainly you and I have been primarily in the kid business. So actually since we've been kids, but, uh, you know, don't let the kid grow like a weed. I mean, that growth mindset, mm-hmm. the growth mindset, I mean, there's got to be growth of the student and it's constant evolvement, but also it's the growth of the tennis teacher. And, um, you know, experience, uh, great teacher. And, you know, case study is like, like you say, live the same, don't live the same day twice is, uh, uh, every situation, every match, it's like a, it's like a book unto itself and, you know, a lesson, um, you know, there's no such thing as just another lesson, you know, that the person's not thinking that way. I think, I think sometimes, uh, you know, people, you know, junior tennis players can have too many lessons and they get lessened out and they don't appreciate the lesson, but oh, that's a great one. Uh, this is great as well. Number seven, self-promote, sell tennis first. So don't self-promote, sell tennis first. Yeah. And, and like, you know, in my lifetime in the sport, um, as it, you know, somebody who enjoyed it as a junior and also somebody who's been fortunate to have it as his career. Um, I think it's never more important 
for anybody right now in tennis to get out and we got to sell tennis. And, um, uh, you know, good things happen. You know, we have 25 pros and, and we've been, I really feel pretty good about the culture of it now and that, um, 24, 25, I can't remember, but it, uh, you know, I always tell the pros, talk the other pros up, you know, when you're talking with people, just talk the other pros up, talk about their, you know, the, the other pros strong points, how, how well they do something. And, and I think that, um, it is a little bit different. I think that many places it's self-promoting and, uh, you have to do a little bit of that. I get it, but um, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a very classy way to go about it. Um, Self promoting is happening pretty much at every tournament you go to, um, handing out cards and and uh, people being preyed on by you know coaches. I mean, when the kid double faults and they see the parent put their head you know hands on their head and. And they walk up to him and say, is that your son or daughter? And, uh, oh, do they not hit a lot of serves at their practices where they're at and blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, they're offering them to come out and try the program. And the people are such easy prey at these things because of the emotion and um, the lack of education. Like you said, it takes 10 years, 1,000 hours a week to be a good player, good coach. Um and it takes a lot of years to become really sound as a tennis parent too. And by the time you do get there, the kids out of junior tennis. And, um, but self-promoting, um, it has, in my opinion, a shelf life. And, uh, uh, I think that eventually it catches up with people. If you sell tennis and you make that your number one priority, I think you can, uh, I don't think that has a, sh- a shelf life and it's good for the sport. Yeah, I'd have to go way back. I may have been with you. Uh, let's see, or uh, Sugo Zobasset. I mean, when's the last time I had a business card? Um, yeah, yeah, I don't have a business card. In fact, um, the way it works for me, I think you know, I'm privileged that my former students send me students and such. But uh, yeah, people have to find us. We don't find them. But it's unfortunate. Uh, and also, too, is that not only they're selling, but they're, as you said earlier, uh, you know the. Well, actually, it's next. I mean, in yeah, merchant of flesh. I mean, they're they're at turns, and let's let's lead right into that. Uh, the murky waters. Let me read it first. Don't be a merchant of flesh at, turn, at tennis tournaments. It's often not ethical or healthy for the players and parents navigating through murky waters. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we kind of alluded to that earlier. It just. Uh emotions are so high at tennis tournaments it seems like way more than i remember them being but uh um i think we as a you know a a group of people um there's there's almost an ethical responsibility to to the profession to not uh do that and you know i always tell our coaches when we inherit a kid that remember they're coming from somewhere else and there's usually two sides to every story and, uh, uh, you know, you don't know about really what happened until the honeymoon period is, is over with people. And, um, you know, I, I've had, uh, uh, you know, I, I, Billy Freer, who, um, you know, passed away recently and ran this 
tennis operation here as the director for many years, but he was pretty, he was pretty, uh, steadfast on, on this particular topic in regard to not wanting us to ever take the low road on that kind of thing at tournaments. Um, you know, and I'll be at one, I'll check it out and report back to you on it, but, uh, this weekend and, um, I just don't think it's healthy. I just think it's, uh, there's just something kind of, I, I don't know. I get a, I get a kind of a, a bad feeling in my stomach about it when I think about, uh, you know, people being, um, approached at tournaments. And if somebody approaches you, that's a different animal, I guess. But, uh, um, you know, the poor parents are, it is murky waters. I mean, they, they, they don't really know some of the dangers that lie in the waters and, and, uh, to prey on that, uh, I, I think it's just a, a very, very unethical thing. We had uh, Casey Curtis on as a guest. He loves tennis and he's I know, definitely a character coach and he's going to get out there and work hard. And, um, you know, we, we're not really connected with, uh, you know, you know, backgrounds or, you know, how do you teach the forehand? How do you not teach the forehand? What have you, but, um, I was in uh, that Boca Raton area where I spent a lot of time, spent time with you in Boca Raton. And, um, you know, a mom called Casey Curtis up and was asking about lessons and said, who do you work with? And the mom said, uh, Steve Smith. And Casey said, you don't need to come and see me. Just keep working with Casey, with Steve Smith. That that doesn't usually happen. You know, that's... Um, yeah. um you know, it's hustle, baby, hustle. But if mm-hmm. um, it, it shouldn't really be that way, that the, you know, I mentioned cherry pick. That to me, that's a Wayne Bryan tip, the or term, the father of the Bryan brothers. You know, some kid gets to the point where they're really good, and then the governing body of tennis, the USTA, that since 1987 now they've been in the player development business. Prior to that, they were not. But I, when you comment on the local scene, so you and your staff do a very good job getting people to hit the ball just within Dallas. I mean, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, neighboring academies are, are looking for your students, correct? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we're, we seem to be inheriting a lot of players here lately for some reason, um, from other places throughout the city, but yeah, through the years for sure. Um, they were often targeted. Uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, again, to use that term, dirty work had been done and it's kind of an attractive package for people. Um, but I also think that, uh, the same thing with coaches, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, a similar kind of approach often with the coaches. Cause I think the coach, the coaches that, you know, come out of your environment, uh, you know, that have, have the background that, that, that where they've been trained and, and, um, I think they, they've been cherry picked as well, so to speak. Um, uh, and, you know, oftentimes, you know, everybody has that desire to spread their wings and, and, and check out the other side of the fence and, you know, I, I, I guess you just gotta nod your head and let them go. But, uh, yeah, usually there's been a little bit of a seduction, uh, that's taken place with players and or coaches in that regard. 
Number nine, uh, cancel lessons, miss work responsibilities, or turn down a lesson request. I love this line. Your liability, reliability is a superpower. Use it wisely. Yeah. Um, you know, going back to uh, just thinking about some of the opportunities I had and listening to Dennis Vandermeer when he, you remember that horrible ice storm when he came in back in, I don't know, 87, 88, whenever I was uh, illegally working on staff for you for $750. Um, <laughs> and uh, overpaid, overpaid. Yeah. And, but I remember him saying, um, you know, I, I remember it was a horrible ice storm in, in, in Dallas and in East Texas. And, and you sent me for some reason to the airport to get him in Dallas from Tyler. And, and it literally took about six hours uh, to get to Dallas and then probably another six back. And then we did that clinic in Longview, if you remember. Um but I think he took note of that uh, and, and he didn't reference it um, because he wasn't surprised because it was coming from an environment you were, you were responsible for. So he, he wasn't surprised by it, but I remember him telling the group of coaches from tennis tech that, you know, unless you're bleeding out of your ear, show up. <laughs> and um, that was, his, I think that was verbatim. And, you know, I think that's that's really how it should be. I mean, I just kind of grew. I had the good fortune of kind of growing up. Uh, I, I don't think I was. I think I made my share of mistakes, believe me. But that was just kind of our mentality at our house growing up. And um, I think that in this day and time, you can get a long, long, long ways in terms of uh, having respect and, and going far in your career if you if you just don't cancel lessons and if you don't miss your responsibilities that you're supposed to do at work and never, I mean, I still to this day have, you know, I've got to learn to say no. I mean, I just, it's, it's, it's hard for me to say no to people. I mean, if they want to learn, I'm, I'm, I like to teach, so it's kind of a good fit and, and uh, just don't turn down a lesson request. And if it's a Sunday, I mean, I, you know, I remember starting here 30 years ago after leaving Boca with, with, you know, where, where we were and, I mean, I used to drive in from Allen, which is a long ways from Brookhaven, on a Sunday to teach an hour to uh, Rob Langdon, who was a, about a 3.0 man. But that's, you know, good things. That's how every, nothing starts big. And it, you got to build it. And, and you build it from really what I think is the greatest superpower for people, and that is reliability and consistency. Um, you know, and it's, it's something that uh, separates. I believe. I mean, we all as coaches love students that are reliable and they're consistent. And, and uh, boy, I think people, I, I can't tell you the number of pros that I've had in my lifetime that have worked around or uh, have worked here with me, for me. And they, they may be great guys, but, you know, the, 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 the people they teach have told me they want to go a different direction and they're just hesitant to tell them because they cancel lessons. Uh, too often and and you know they're late a little bit for the lessons and and so I think it's a very important thing plus it's just a good quality to having you know people remember you by when you're gone yeah you just don't want to be called lazy uh, up here in the mountain I went out and I 
bought, you know, instead of buying a really expensive jacket out of the ski shop that get a healthy percentage off, uh, I bought two jackets. They're pretty nice, but um, I bought a blue one, which is uh, acceptable in many places. But the blue, the blue one will go over the orange one. I bought one. I mean, I look like a walking pylon. But sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, there's fog on the mountain. And it's like, no, I, you know, I, we're a half mile away. And like, no, I'm walking, uh, you know. And granted, you know, the van's got to go back and forth with, you know, players with equipment. Uh, you know, we only have, um, uh, you know, we have a visiting coach, as I said, from Lithuania and a visiting player with their parents from Canada. And it's like, let's go. It's, uh, it's just like we got a workshop with, you know, 40, 50 coaches and, you know, I used to have a job with Vic Braden um, with my job was to put chairs away. You know, so if say he had a full weekend with 72 and for some reason he had a very, didn't happen very often, but he had a small group on Monday. He didn't want to have a classroom with, with empty chairs. So he had, we actually have a, a Vic Braden chair at the table. One of those uh, deck chairs or captain's chairs, mm-hmm. uh, director's mm-hmm. chairs. And, uh, but you know, he, he went in with, you know, okay, this is a new day. We, you know, it doesn't matter if there's one or there's a hundred people in the room. Uh, someone, uh, who I spent time with, uh, at your facility and many other facilities, Sujay Lama, he was on a couple of weeks ago and we're mm-hmm. trying to edify Dennis Vandermeer. So you would know Jenkins one, one five. So we always had an auditorium, an old auditorium, um, you know, probably, you know, 90 people could sit in that room, 70, anyway, quite a few. And, but yeah. I, I, anytime I had a lab, I always had that class because if it rained, I had to have a place to go with this huge program we had, which actually got to be over a hundred at one time. So Dennis mm-hmm. and I were walking, we're, okay, Dennis, okay, we're going to, we're going to cover doubles and we'll meet and where are we going to stay out with J115 and everybody's walking up and I was with Dennis at the end of the parade so a hundred plus students and um, there's some McDonald's wrappers and I, they're on, you know, right by the sidewalk. And I, I just, excuse me. And I, you know, Dennis was talking to me and I went off the sidewalk a little bit, picked up the McDonald's wrappers and, and threw them away. And so, and then we uh, got up to the classroom. It was just great. He, he said, we're not talking about doubles now. He goes, there's only one of you that I would hire. And he, you know, he goes, every one of you walked by, you know, Dennis, it's not my job, man. You know, it's not my job. It is your job. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, you know, you walk by some garbage at the tennis facility, you pick it up. And, uh, you know, I think a Munihiro Yoshida, you know, the son of a billionaire and a uh, very successful guy. And, um, you know, it, it was so important for him when a junior would come out of the washroom that they had wiped down the counter. And, you know, he would periodically, oh, let me go ahead and see that counter. Um, yeah, those are life lessons. I think that, um, you know, young, young juniors are losing out on, but you know, young juniors become teaching pros that evolution. Mm-hmm. Let's go with number 10. Uh, ever, t- uh, don't ever take for granted the impact of a teacher coach can have on a young person. You'll either be a molder of dreams or an architect of destruction. Great coaches change the trajectory of students' lives, students' lives. That's worth reading again. Don't ever take for granted the impact of a teacher, coach, and have on a young person. You'll either be a molder of dreams or an architect of destruction. Great coaches change the trajectory of a student's life or students' lives. 
That's a great one to end on. What do you got there? Davey Anderson, Minot, North Dakota. Well, I mean, I think it, I mean, I'm on the phone right now making a living in tennis because I ran into you. And, you know, I, I want to give credit to Jerry Lyon, who, you know, was my childhood coach as well from, you know, age eight to when you, when you got a hold of what a mess I was, but you know, it, it's just true. I mean, um, you know, we, we all have an opportunity to really, you know, change people and, and make their, not only their, their, their day better, their time with you better, but, um, alter the, alter the, the direction, the trajectory of their life. And, uh, you know, to be able to use tennis as a vehicle to do that. And, uh, at the same time, um, you know, to be an architect of destruction, I, I think that, you know, people would think of that as us using, you know, being too harsh, doing whatever, but the reality is it might be allowing kids with, um, you know, some sort of flaw inside of their character or behavior that, goes unchecked that ends up costing them down the road. And, um, you know, it, uh, so I think it, I think if you go into it realizing, you know, not to put pressure on yourself, but going into it, realizing that, uh, there's, you know, obviously the importance of teaching the player to the best of, of your ability to get them to have the best chance to be, uh, a gold medalist in their body to use a Vic Braden term, but, um, it, it also, it also carries far beyond into the, into the years, uh, when you may not even be in contact with them 20, 15, 20 years later. And, you know, we plant a lot of seeds as coaches, um, and we're not always there to see the crop, um, you know, come into, come into fruition, fruition, but, um, you know, I think that just knowing that you're planting the right seeds and you, and you did all you could to take care of it in the time you were there and, and knowing that the crop will, will come sometime. And I don't know, it's, it's to me, it's pretty fun. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, it's certainly the reason I set my alarm and get up every morning and, and, uh, you know, do what I do. And I, and I, I think it's, uh, it's motivating to me. No, it's great to hear. Great words. Um, how's it go? Uh, life is tennis. Tennis is life. And all the problems in life are problems in tennis. With, uh, Yeah, I think, you know, don't take for granted the the opportunity to be in tennis. Don't take the, you know, the, the opportunity to be a teacher. And as you said with this last point, to touch someone's life. This has been a lot of great common sense. Um, I guess we could end with a little more common sense. Um, you know, we certainly, you know, you're a big part of it, been, you know, part of it now for 40 some years is we've been taught through these pillars we have to teach uh, very efficient tennis. And I just want to come back to Freddie Foreman with, uh, don't you really think that because, you know, he started tennis late and he didn't play tennis as early as you did, but he was superior in every other sport. Don't you really think all these years later, even if he's only just practicing a little bit, that uh, it'll be one-sided? It'll be uh, Freddie dominates Davey? What do you think? Well, I, 
you kind of contradicted yourself a second ago because you said we were going to end with common sense and then you used Freddie Foreman's name. And <laughs> Actually, listeners, you just have to hear that. If, Fre- <laughs> if Freddie were to listen to this, for, for me, it would just be just, just to see Freddie laugh. Um, with uh, he, he would just love it that I was giving you the gears. But uh, Yeah, no, he, uh, he was a good wrestler. He was a runner-up in state. Um, I think he wrestled whatever the lightest weight was. He was a toothpick, 105 maybe. No, so, I, you know, in wrestling, yeah, he was tiny, but he was a good wrestler. But the other sports, um, he, I would say he's a natural athlete, but he was he was second in a field of two with me in the other sports. <laughs> you I, can you can go down the list, and they'll just check off number two in his. I uh, I do remember the time uh, TK Gorman, Jim, rainy day. It's like all right, Anderson, you and Foreman out here and wrestle, and uh, yeah, uh, you certainly uh, held, held your own, but. Uh, I did hold my own, but I was I had I had a little weight on him, and I got to start in the up position. But that, he was, yeah. Here's a TK Gorman story for you. So he had those South Africans, Costa Scopolitis and uh, John Lafnidiaga, mm-hmm. and they came over and Russell Seymour. That really helped Craig Tiley um, because you know Craig was. Uh, South African student and he got connected with uh, these top juniors. And um, Mm -hmm. so, but these guys, maybe it's changed, but at that time, the South Africans, those two South Africans in particular, they weren't very good basketball players. And even though that's not, soccer is not really one of the school sports. They they were, they were very good soccer players. So I said, all right, you, you know the story. So I said, all right, I put two sports together. And this came up before the, the lane in front of the hoop. And that that's uh yeah we call it the paint yeah so anyway the it turned into rugby as well because uh, it was all right play soccer in the gym the rest of the gym but once the ball gets in the lane play basketball and then it just became a scrum and uh mm-hmm. the uh yeah I'd love telling that story um you know yeah, Diago was a big kid just diving for diving for that basketball and then you know you get that close to the to the basket you got a chance of getting it in but. Um, yeah, one story leads to another story, but, uh, hopefully our listeners, uh, you know, add this to, uh, their story and it helps them, uh, the tennis teaching professionals that, that, that are listening, uh, helps them be a little bit better, but also to, or helps them help their staff be a little bit better, um, or, or, or someone who's new coming to the game be a little bit better. Um, so teaching needs to exist in every facet of the game, but listeners thanks for uh hanging in there and dave anderson thanks yeah. for more of your time uh it's great to have you, you uh, help us with this podcast yeah yvonne we'll see you later as well yvonne lendl all right number, yeah. number one okay he was in the u.s open finals for eight years our, our, but our yvonne's better all right good night listeners adios amigos thank you all right Dave. thanks Steve. yeah bye Hanging up on Anderson. I guess I've already said adios amigos listeners. I can say it again, but thank you very much. Thanks Dave for the time. Yvonne, everybody making this happen. And thanks for the listeners. Good night.